Hi, um, welcome to another episode of Hope. So today, our episode is titled Hope for Collective Intelligence. And today I'm here with Ankita Ma'am. Um, she's been one of my mentors for the last year and a half. And she's taught me a lot about public policy, economics, just the social sciences in general. And she's helped me grow a lot. She's helped my knowledge expand a lot. So I'm very excited to have her here today. Hi, Ankita Ma'am. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much, Eliza, for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. So um, I think we can start off by uh, you giving an introduction of your academic background and the fields that you work in currently so that we can set the theme of the podcast today. Okay, so uh, I actually did my bachelor's in English literature from St. Stephen's, uh, which is a little different from what I'm currently doing in terms of my work. So uh, St. Stephen's College is one of the colleges at Delhi University, for those of you who don't know about that. Um, And uh, it's a really good college, especially in terms of the arts um, and the social sciences. Um, But while I was pursuing my undergraduate degree in English literature, I realized that um, I had uh, a deep interest in in resolving current issues and governance issues and uh, and in public policy in general, so to speak. I realized that by uh, utilizing my time, my three years uh, doing my undergraduate degree at St. Stephen's um, in pursuing many different varied internships uh, with NGOs and uh, think tanks that are based in Delhi. So Delhi being the capital, it was really a great access point for me in terms of doing these internships. Because I actually originally come from a small town in Kerala and uh, there wasn't, I didn't really have a lot of access to these kind of organizations there. But as soon as I reached Delhi, I kind of approached all these organizations and just tried to learn as much as I could about this field because I saw that I had some interest, but before I could make any decisions, I needed to know what it was about. So um, I actually did quite a few internships in various spheres. I did ones on um, gender violence, I did ones on international relations. Um, And I realized that I definitely want to work in public policy in the development sector, uh, perhaps in the intersection of these two. And so uh, I applied to Sciencepo and I got in for a master's uh, in human rights and humanitarian action, which is basically uh, an international development course with, um, with a focus on human rights. So, uh, again, during my time um, at Sciencepo, I uh, again did quite a few internships and one of those internships converted into what I am now um, specializing in, so to speak. Um, It was through a professor, uh, his name was Mr. Professor Lex Paulson, and uh, he was a consultant with uh, the Prague Office of Institute S21, which is a Czech think tank that works on participatory democracy and innovative voting systems, um, especially the Anishek voting method. Uh, So uh, during my two years doing my masters, I interned with them part-time and it was really interesting exploring this particular field. So much so that I decided that I at least want to continue working on this for a few years and see where it takes me. So that's how, the organization, the Prague headquarters, and I decided that we'll set up an Indian office in um, Delhi, based out of yeah. Delhi, and uh, and I would start working on um, the the concepts that. 
they were researching on and the pilot projects that they were doing um, on uh, participatory democracy and try to bring that to India, which is a kind of country that they hadn't worked on in terms of these um, in terms of these concepts and these ideas and these kinds of research before. So it would be uh, a great way for them to um, expand their research that way. And it would be a great way for me to bring um, their ideas back to my home country. So right. that's how that happened. And so since 2016, I've been working with Institute H21 um, and I've been leading the Indian office. And we have been focusing primarily on, um, on introducing concepts of concepts and practices of participatory democracy um, into India, especially with a focus on young people, because right. uh, whatever whatever time that I spent working on Indian projects uh, during my time at my master's uh, helped me tell them that, you know, in terms of our Indian strategy, we need to focus on young people because they yeah. are the ones who will recognize these concepts, recognize the value of the same and uh, be ready and enthusiastic and energy to, uh, energetic enough to um, implement them in a difficult context like India. Right. So uh, that's how we developed our strategy. And so for the past five, six years, I've been working on this. And along the way, I realized that um, there is a new field called collective intelligence that's coming up in uh, political science, as well as in other spheres uh, of the social sciences, as well as STEM disciplines as well, that basically uh, is trying to bring together this whole concept um, of working together, of groups of people working together to arrive at better outcomes. Right. Uh, that concept exists in many different forms in many different fields, including cognitive science, including political science, including even data science. Um, but uh, collective intelligence as a field tries to bring together all these concepts and tries to um, club it together under the overall research domain of collective intelligence. Right. That's what collective intelligence is, essentially, broadly. And the term, I would say, originated um, from um, computer science, from right. data science. Um, it's been it's been uh, a terminology that's been common in these fields for the past 10, 20 years. But, uh, and in these fields, uh, it specifically means the interaction between human beings and technology and machines. Right. Yeah. So when we transfer uh, the concept of collective intelligence to fields like political science <clears throat> or other disciplines in, so in the social sciences, we see that it's more of a focus on, um, on people alone Right. Um, we add concepts of civic technology into it, but the focus is on understanding how can, you know, large groups of people come together and, um, you know, arrive at decisions together uh, systematically in, in an organized manner um, so that we arrive at better results, basically. So right. that's what yeah. collective intelligence is in terms of the field that I work in, in terms of um, the way I see it in terms of the way I practice it as a practitioner and the way I research it as well. Right. Okay. So that pretty much breaks down what we're going to be covering in today's podcast. And first of all, um, I just wanted to say how cool it is that you actually got to like start an entire think tank on your own in India, because like, I feel like the public policy domain is something that's very underrepresented in, in the Indian context, you know? And especially when it comes to like young people, it's very difficult to find opportunities to be able to um, 
explore that domain you know and i feel like um a lot of the projects that i have been a part of with you were also sort of collective intelligence based right so for example if we take the billion life project uh that had an element of collective intelligence to it too right so that was basically a youth empowerment and engagement project wherein we discussed different issues we came up with ways to solve them we allocated a specific sum of money to ensure that that issue was being solved by an existing organization right and i think what that helped us what what that helped you and your organization to do was sort of gauge the opinion of like different contexts right because we had indian students and we had czech students so it allowed like a comparison and contrast of like the different um viewpoints that both the sets of students come from and the way they want to solve certain issues and it sort of helped to combine both of those and come up with like one concrete project right so yeah i think i myself have seen collective intelligence being applied in a lot of the projects that i've run with you and i think um the way you do it is like really inspiring because it it's so accessible you know because the word collective intelligence comes off as like a very scary word that's a little difficult to understand yeah. <laughs> but when you actually like go into it and actually do like a project under it you you understand that it's basically just involving citizens gauging viewpoints and forming a narrative that encompasses the viewpoints of a particular demographic right yeah 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 it's actually a really simple concept but the reason why uh, you know it's been um, it's been a subject of academic research now or it has started to become a very serious subject of academic research now is because there are so many different ways of doing it and there are so many different contexts within which we can do it right. and um, and most importantly it needs to be done in a very systematic way because there are uh, different ways of doing it that can really uh, you know mess up the whole process right. and lead to people actually ending up with the thought that you know people groups of people large groups of people can't work together and that's yeah. something we need to pres- uh, we need to completely uh, get rid of uh, in terms of the night as as an idea because the more globalized that our world is becoming and the more complex um, and globally shared our issues are becoming the more important it's becoming that uh, we need to all uh, you know um, try to resolve these issues together look at the covid right. pandemic for example um so many different vaccines um and so many different uh, you know technologies for uh, arriving at those vaccines and now there's this whole issue for example of the fact that some vaccines are accepted by some countries and some aren't based on where they were produced who designed them and all of that yeah same. so uh something that um something that simple um is creating so many different issues now it's preventing people from traveling it's preventing people from working certain people have taken certain vaccines can't uh travel to certain countries um this should and at the same time this is a solution that uh is something that is something that the whole world wanted we all wanted yeah. a vaccine together exactly. but now we've ended up with so many different types of vaccines by so many different companies and by manufactured in so many different countries that uh it's become an entire problem in itself So this is the kind of situation that we need to try and avoid in the future right i mean okay. as the world is becoming more globalized these kinds of issues these kind of really complex problems are going to keep coming up over and over again exactly. so that's what the whole domain that's what the whole academic discipline um of uh, collective intelligence is trying to um is trying to understand like how do we 
how do we bring together all these different types of practices, CI practices, CI research, CI concepts that exist in different countries uh, and uh, that are, you know, uh, that have been come up with different public policy and academic, academia um, from different countries, by di from different nationalities. How do we bring all that together and see you know, and make sure that everybody has access to all these, um, all these different concepts, all these different methodologies, all right. these different techniques and tools, because exactly. uh, it's a, it's really excellent knowledge, but we haven't compiled it yet. The way that we compile uh, different theories of democracy, for example, under the overall term of political science, we also need to uh, compile different, um, different practices and different um, uh, methodologies of collective intelligence under the overall field of collective intelligence uh, from different countries and from different contexts so that we all know, um, you know, what are the options we have, like what are the solutions, what are the methodologies that we can possibly use to resolve different problems in different contexts. So that's why the whole field of collective intelligence for me personally is very interesting, especially in terms of research. And that's why I'm part of this um, research um, book, this academic book actually. Um, I would say the first one um, in the discipline of collective intelligence that's coming out uh, later Sorry. this year, published by Routledge. I'm going to, I'm working uh, with a team of three academics on this. Um, there's Professor Paulson again from uh, Sciansko. Oh, there's another thanks. professor from Sciansko as well. And there's also a professor who is associated with the Copenhagen um, Business School. So we've all come together to compile as many different case studies um, from as many different disciplines where collective intelligence is used to kind of create this handbook of the best practices of collective intelligence that uh, especially governments and public policy people and even people in academia can use. Right. So that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think that brings me to my next question. Um, what are some uh, so since you've done like an entire piece of research on this, according to you, what are like the best real life examples that show how collective intelligence is something that can be mobilized for the greater good? Mm -hmm. Well, there are both historical examples as well as current examples. I'll probably go with the current example. Um, my organization especially works a lot on participatory budgeting, which yeah. uh, I would say is one of the most popular forms of uh, popular methodologies of collective intelligence that exist right now. Um, so to break it down in very simple terms, participatory budgeting is a really simple um, methodology where uh, a budget, whether it's the budget of a city or a state is opened up to the citizens of that city or state and the citizens are allowed to decide on which projects or which ideas should be implemented by that city or state um, and which fits within that budget. So right. it's a way of allowing people to have a voice in um, governance decisions that directly um, affect them. So if you look at the point of view of a city, for example, or a city administration, they take a lot of really important decisions like what, uh, which roads to build where and which areas should have parks or libraries, um, whether a new school should come up or a new hospital should come up. And right. I guess I'm also talking mainly in terms of uh, Western cities, by the way, because Western cities, uh, cities in the US or in European uh, countries, for example, they have a lot of um, administrative powers. They have their own ways of creating revenue and they spend that revenue on 
um, making sure that the people within that city um, uh, you know, have better facilities. So uh, cities like that, when you open up a portion of their budget to citizens, then the citizens actually get a say in what the city should develop to become and, uh, you know, which direction the city should go in terms of improving its facilities. And that may sound like a really simple process. And you may wonder why we haven't thought of it before. And that's a good question because, you know, um, since a city is supposed to be for its citizens, why isn't this happening all the time? Exactly. Um, One, because uh, a city usually has a large number of citizens. So the idea of consulting everybody becomes really daunting for a city administration naturally. Yeah. Uh, you know, a city administration may have maybe 50 to 100 employees and a city may actually have, you know, 500,000 people within its, uh, right. within its uh, residence. So it might seem really daunting. And that's why the concept of participatory budgeting or city PB, as we call it, uh, is, uh, is very important because that process breaks down um, the idea, this idea of giving citizens a voice through the city's budget into several steps. Um, And the main steps would be deliberation among the citizens, uh, submitting of their project proposals um, and voting on the final list of project proposals that come out. So uh, various uh, modifications are made to these three basic steps based on the context uh, of the city itself. But overall, this is the process that it follows. There's deliberation, um there's uh submitting your project proposals and there's also usually a campaigning phase where citizens who represent their own project proposals you know advocate for why their project proposals should win yeah right and then there's the voting process finally of course uh so when you break it down into uh very systematic steps um and when you implement it in different contexts then it becomes easier for, for a city administration to see that, okay, this is not something impossible. It yeah. is possible for us to consult all our citizens and it is possible to make sure that whatever decision uh, the city takes is uh, in accordance with the priorities and needs of the citizens. So right. that's why I would call PB a methodology. It's not just a concept, it's an entire methodology. There are steps, there are rules as to how it should be done. Yeah. And, uh, and it's been implemented in a lot of cities since the 80s, and uh, it's been very successful if followed correctly, of course, in terms of its process, in terms of its yeah. methodology. But um, I would say that one of the uh, best examples of um, successful city PV happening is in New York City, where my organization's proud team um, has been an external consultant since 2016. Um, they've been implementing uh, city PV since uh, 2016. Um, and even before that, actually, because uh, New York City has its own constitution, being as large a city as it is, and within yeah. the constitution, it's mandated that the city needs to conduct uh, participatory budgeting at once a year for its citizens. Right. So uh, since 2016, we have been a part of it, but it's been going on way before that. And uh, it's it's been happening very regularly. It's been happening very systematically. It's been happening... Uh, following the processes and the methodologies that are, you know, best, uh, uh, that are best, uh, that are best in the interests of the city, and which has been proven according to data as well, according to various reports published uh, on participatory budgeting by the World Bank and other think tanks. 
So they've been doing really well. There's actually a budget of around 30 million that's allocated for the PV process, which is a huge budget. Yeah, and uh, and uh, all the citizens uh, have been um, participating very enthusiastically. The projects that are chosen have been um, actually created into tangible sort of projects, you know, whether if the citizens uh, propose that a new park should be built, that park has been built. And yeah. so the execution of the project proposals has also been really successful. Right. So overall, I would say this is one of the best examples of um, city participatory budgeting that exists in the world that I know of. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So um, then when we talk about the fact that New York City was successful, um, that sort of brings us to like another topic of discussion, which is how do you take advantage of collective intelligence? You know, how do you mobilize people um, to sort of say that, yes, this is something we want to take part in, you know, because as we see today, there are a lot of trends wherein citizens themselves are so tired of like their opinion supposedly not yeah. mattering in the larger democracy that they just choose not to participate. You know, you take the example of the US yeah. where um there are senators coming up and saying if you come and vote we will give you these incentives you know they're literally being in mm. given incentives to vote because of the fact that uh they've lost their faith in government and the fact that their vote vote will have any tangible impact you know so how do you mobilize people to say and how do you take advantage of that mobilization to sort of um harness the power of collective intelligence um so I think when it comes to dealing with the disillusionment of people with democracies, um, the only real way that we can resolve that problem is by showing people that democracies do work. Right. Um, and that's by making sure that whatever process is happening, um, it's happening according to the way it was supposed to happen. Okay. So uh, when it comes to participatory budgeting, for example, um, in a lot of cases they've seen uh, in our research that uh, it was supposed to happen one way, but it ended up um, going in another direction. Right. Uh, it ended up not following the rules or the actual steps that were outlined uh, to be a part of the process, for example. So um, if, for example, a PV process happens at the city level and the people come together and they vote on projects and they decide, okay, this, this particular project is the one that we most like uh, that we think is the most is the biggest priority of the city and the uh, city administration says that okay this particular project will be will be created and finished um, within 14 months and uh, after 14 months citizens still do not see the project coming into um, coming into being yeah. then that creates a disillusionment with the entire process and with democracy as a whole. So that is one of the problems that um, PB can potentially uh, encounter. Maybe the process until the voting phase has been followed perfectly, but if the projects that the citizens have voted on are not implemented the way they were supposed to be implemented, the way that the city administration promised that they would be implemented, right. then that means that citizens don't really see the point of taking out their time to participate yeah. in the process the next time around, right? Exactly. Naturally. Yeah. So that's so that's one of the ways in which um, that can happen. Okay. Okay. So um, since that's a problem that does come up, um, 
how do you uh, so like how do you ensure that collective intelligence and uh, is something that will solve that and how do you ensure that people want to come and take part in collective intelligence projects you know because sometimes just simply saying that um, we're sorry that this happened to you in the past it won't happen in the future isn't really enough to get people to participate in collective intelligence projects right so how do you harness the power of a collective intelligence project then we have seen um in all the examples that with a uh, study that uh, pb processes are usually followed uh, perfectly according to the rules including the execution of projects usually when the city administration is directly elected by the people okay uh, why i say that is because um there is a difference between indian cities and western cities in that sense yeah. in terms of the administration um the city administration of uh, most western cities those in the us and those in europe uh, in and those in many parts of europe at least um they are directly elected by the people the mayor of the city is is a directly elected representative of the people as opposed right. to india where in cities if we have a mayor it's like the role of the president of the country it's a very um administrative role um it's a very uh, sort of namesake role so to speak yeah. the president yeah. does not have any sort of executive powers or even legislative powers for the most part it's the same with the mayor and therefore the mayor is somebody who is usually elected by the ruling party of the state yeah so uh, he or she is not in that way uh, any way accountable to the people of that city and moreover uh, cities in india um, especially um, they don't have the power to collect funds um, from their side from the citizens of the city itself the funds that the cities uh, in india uh, actually have come from either the state or the central government okay. so the city does not have any relationship with its people in that sense the city administration yeah. does not have any relationship with its own citizens in that sense yeah. so that becomes a problem because then how do we hold the city administration accountable we can't they become right. unapproachable they become unaccountable and uh, they they don't really care uh, about yeah. what happens to the city in that sense you have to go to the state or central level then and that is obviously impossible for the ordinary citizen you know we can maybe think about going up to the city uh, uh town hall office to speak with somebody there but we can't possibly think about going to uh you know politicians at the state level or the central level in india right so uh you know in a situation like that even if a pv process is conducted you will most likely find that it will not be implemented um in its you know full um in the way that it was meant to be especially in terms of the execution of the projects we may not see um it happening the way it's supposed to be on the other hand if we look at a western city if a city administration decides that a pv process is going to happen it most likely does that because um there's also a public relations opportunity for the city administration in a process like that and we encourage right. that because that usually means that the city administration including the mayor will be personally invested in making sure that the pv process happens yeah um the way it is supposed to happen that it happens successfully that it happens in a way that all citizens are happy with the outcomes in terms of the fact that it uh, you know ran exactly the way that they were informed it would run. um exactly. that the projects are implemented um at the end of uh you know the voting process and all of that 
so that happens as i said because the city administration would have a you know vested interest in making sure the citizens are happy because otherwise they won't be voting back in power next time around so exactly, yeah. in that sense i feel like it uh, i i believe in that sense that um to make sure that a process like participatory budgeting which is you know as i said one of the best practices one of the most um popular practices right now in collective intelligence when it comes to governance and administration um the way the only way and the best way for it to be done um properly is to make sure that whichever administration is conducting it has decided to see it through is actually accountable to the people that it's doing it for right yeah so um have there been any such cases in the indian context or in the context of developing countries because as you mentioned right and developing countries specifically india um the city administrations don't necessarily have any incentive to conduct a process like this right and i'm sure that similar situations exist in other developing countries as well because of the fact that the governmental structure tends to be the same to facilitate the growth of a developing country right so um have you seen any instances of it working out in developing countries or any um trials in india uh so i can't speak for all developing countries i don't think that the administrative framework or uh, the especially the decentralization part of the administration framework of all developing countries um are the same um yeah. maybe in india cities don't have power but there are some parts in the, some parts of asia that do have a lot of power at the city level taiwan china is an example well, yeah. um yeah china well uh, i would say hong kong but i don't know about other parts of china um okay. but taiwan and hong, hong kong are actually good examples uh, where there's uh, a lot of decentralization uh, at least at the administrative level at least at the constitution level there's um, definite decentralization in its framework so right. um in india that's the main problem we have decentralization um on a namesake basis the 73rd and 74th amendments in the indian constitution um stipulated for decentralization but uh, i have seen and you know a lot of uh, people working in this area believe um in this area not just collective intelligence but urban planning in general yeah. actually uh, we all believe that real power lies in financial power yeah if the uh, bodies that we're talking about whether it's city administrations or even neighborhood administrations if they don't have financial power if they don't have the ability to collect their own funds and uh, disperse them at their own um, sort of discretion yeah. uh, if they don't have the administrative framework for that then um, this becomes impossible almost because there's no accountability yeah. involved and without okay. accountability no method of collective intelligence could actually work right yeah so that's that's actually a very big problem in india because we say that we have decentralization and like our political science textbooks are like filled with chapters and chapters on it but at the end of the day it's just um state government saying hey you know what we'll give you a penny maybe use this for something and then like what are you going to yeah. do with that penny you know like what can you do with like the minuscule amount of money that's been allotted to you as like a city administration you know like it's not just the amount of the funds actually yeah i would say that the bigger problem is the fact that maybe the state administration has one political party in power 
yeah but uh, you know a village panchayat or a city uh, may have another political party that is more popular among its citizens for right. good reason maybe you know maybe that uh, particular uh, you know branch of that particular party even if it's not performing very well at the state level it may be doing very well at a particular city level or a particular regional level they, they right. may have some great uh, you know workers some great party workers who is doing some great work and people have recognized that and they actually want um, that political party which is maybe the opposition for the state government right. you know so then when that political dynamic comes into being you can imagine how much how complex the whole situation then might become because become, right. if the state government has all the power to disperse the funds to an administration that is uh, actually dominated by its opposition party then yeah. all kinds of possibilities open up so that's yeah. a big issue because you see in india we can't again generalize within states there are regions that are doing well and there yeah. are regions that are doing badly right within states within uh, entire districts there are uh, you know village panchayats that are uh, doing really well and other panchayats that are doing really badly that badly. have bad yeah. uh, you know administration so uh, you know we're all kind of stuck in that sense uh, because of this whole framework um and because i think decentralization still hasn't been achieved um to as um minute a level to as nuanced a level as it can be achieved and that's still something that um we should ideally be advocating for right and the thing is you know like um i've seen that a lot of people i know and like a lot of the public policy enthusiasts or people who work in the field uh the other ones who acknowledge the problems that we're talking about right now that there is a political dynamic in play there are there is a financial uh, dynamic in play which prevents decentralization to actually occur but the problem is that um those people are not necessarily the ones who have the capacity to be able to make a decision based off of that you know so that's another problem that comes into play but uh for example like if you remember like remember when we did that research project on um, the cmgg initiative like the chief minister's good mm-hmm. governance associates then we had like um uh these uh, social workers who had similar beliefs to what we're talking about right now go down to the district level and sort of lay down their foot and work with is officers to ensure that development was taking place you know so if in india if it's not even um just uh, delegate like giving a uh, decentralized powers more power having fresh insights and having fresh people come in who sort of have a particular viewpoint can help to a very large extent as well especially in the indian context you know because it's only pilot projects like this which will sort of help um bring the new viewpoint to people who have just stayed in that part of the city for a very long time you know it can but um, you know at the end of the day i do feel that um, unless uh, we amend the constitution um, to uh, make the decentralization framework of it even better right um nothing can really happen because you know we ha- we may have uh, some very good people working um uh, for the better good but uh, you know without legal frameworks in place there is a limit to how much they can achieve that's the problem you know that's that's why public policy is important because policy is uh, legal frameworks it's um legal guidelines it's uh, things that can be enforced uh it's uh it's you know it's things that we can go to court for 
um it's right. things that can't be denied to us so the policy framework in itself in that sense has to change a little bit um and it won't change unless and until we advocate for it unless and until we all ask for it from um from the parties that you know ask for our votes right that's very true and i feel like that's something that's maybe not talked as much about right now in the political scenario that we live in right now it's more about um just dividing groups and getting the votes that you can honestly like yeah. it's not based on whether um this is some like oh you know this is something we actually need maybe you should give it to us it's more like um let me target this particular group and get as many votes from them as i can and then just sort of ensure mm-hmm. that it ends up working out you know <laughs> oh my god there i see your cat there <laughs> Uh, she's she wants to be part of the whole policy yeah obviously <laughs> yeah it's okay my she dog was like standing outside out. as well my dog was standing out outside staring at me like why are you shutting me out from this room i want to come to <laughs> also has her own opinions oh. on policy yeah yeah she also has her own you know opinions on the policy framework <laughs> of the country and how it should be amended to benefit the rights of um kitties i'm sure she does <laughs> we really need to work towards ensuring that cats are given their due justice <laughs> yes <laughs> i want to conclude by you know pointing out that like uh you have pointed out the term collective intelligence might sound a bit scary but actually it's really simple um it's the whole idea of trying to bring um people all over the world uh people from different um people from different backgrounds different um ec- uh, economic backgrounds social backgrounds uh people of varied experiences people of varied skills together to uh resolve problems that are shared by all of us collectively that are shared by you know large groups of people no matter where they come from right that's what collective intelligence is as a as a whole and um we can when we think of the world as it stands now and as it go- is going to become in in the coming decades in the coming centuries we can easily see why as a discipline this is this is important now why it's coming up as uh, as a topic of research as a topic of uh, uh funded study it's as a topic of important um uh, uh important consideration right. um I guess I would say that again you know the covid-19 pandemic is probably the best example for us to see exactly why we need to think uh, all of us together you know people across different countries and backgrounds together even people within one country for for that matter to resolve a complex issue like a pandemic we don't know what what other kinds of crises are going to come up in the future and it's exactly. only going to get more and more complex it's only yeah. going to get more and more complex you know we've had outbreaks of viruses and um other kinds of diseases in countries in the past historically speaking this is nothing new but what's new about it is that because of the way in which we have become globalized now in 2020 uh the whole world um is suffering from the same problem same problem right um, yeah from the same complex problem of a virus pandemic so that's only going to keep happening um and uh, as the world grows and the world becomes more um complex the problems are also co- going to continue becoming even more complex and more unpredictable one of the things about this pandemic is that no country saw this coming and yeah. these kinds of problems are just going to keep happening um they're going to come in different forms they're going to come in different uh, shapes and forms 
uh, and the only way we can really um, try to survive all of this, uh, try to survive the complexity of this new world that we're living, is by acknowledging that they're living in this new world that uh, needs to accommodate everybody and right. not just certain countries certain or people, certain nationalities yeah. or certain races, yeah, certain communities and so on. Um, so that's why collective intelligence is important. And uh, that's why there is so much research being done right now on um, what exactly are the different kinds of methods and practices that exist right now and what else can be thought of in the future, for the future. Right. And I think that serves as like a pretty good overview of everything we talked about today. And it serves as a great starting point to collective intelligence as well. And um, I think uh, in a few months or so, when Ankit Anam's book comes out, on collective intelligence that will sort of give us um, an even more in-depth idea into how it works and the different case studies that are there in the world of it. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that and hi to the cat again. <laughs> but um, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for taking out the time to talk to me today, ma'am. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure uh, speaking about this topic. I feel very strongly um, about this area of research and I'm very excited about it. And um, of course, just to clarify, uh, the book, the textbook that's coming out, I'm an assistant editor. So um, I have a case study in that book, um, but uh, you know, I'm not the uh, chief editors. Right. Uh, I'm not part of the chief editorial team of the book. Just to clarify, but yeah, it's it's a really cool, it's a really it's a really great um, work, and I'm very excited about having worked on it um, as an as an assistant uh, in the team, and I'm excited about having one of my own case studies also in it. It's about school participatory budgeting that was conducted in a. Uh, school in Prague but right. yeah definitely watch out for it it's uh, it's going to be kind of a game changer in the whole discipline of collective intelligence so perfect um so that brings us to the end of today's episode hope for collective intelligence um thank you so much for listening in and that's it for today